Hello, everyone. Welcome to the CNS Journal Club podcast for March 2021. My name is Tiffany Hodges from University Hospitals, Case Western Reserve University of Cleveland, Ohio, and I will be serving as the moderator today for this discussion. Today, we are very excited to highlight an article from Neurosurgery Journal entitled Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Pathway for Single-Level Minimally Invasive T-Lift Decreases Length of Stay in Opioid Consumption. I am happy to welcome the lead author of the manuscript, Mina Kirillis, who is a current Neurosurgery Spine Fellow at Columbia University. Dr. Kirillis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, excited to be with all of you today. Fantastic. I'd also like to welcome our guest faculty uh, today. We have Dr. Michael Wang, Professor in Chief of Neurosurgery at the University of Miami Hospital, where he also serves as Spine Neurosurgery Fellowship Director. Welcome, Dr. Wang. Thanks, Tiffany. I love this podcast, and thanks for having me on. Of course, welcome. Also, like to welcome Dr. Matt Cummick, who is current uh, neurosurgery resident at Rutgers University. Welcome, Dr. Cummick, to the podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be here. And we have our CNS resident fellow, Dr. Nitesh Patel, who is from Rutgers University, who will be discussing the paper and asking questions today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. Before we start the discussion, I would like to remind our listeners that if you would like to, to purchase the CME uh, version of the podcast, to please visit the educational catalog at cns.org. So Dr. Careless, would you mind giving a brief summary of the manuscript and your inspiration behind the paper? Sure, Tiffany. We created an enhanced recovery pathway because we wanted to improve the patient's post-operative experience. We, we've been using minimally invasive techniques for quite a while, but we've noticed that you know, the opioid requirements after surgery and the length of hospitalization were still relatively high. And this is kind of contrary to the inherent benefits of minimally invasive spine surgery. So we, we really set out to try to create a pathway that would improve our post-operative outcomes uh, without really changing um, you know, the patient's experience. And uh, we modeled this after several other um, orthopedic subspecialties, enhanced recovery pathways, and a few other studies that have been published in the spine literature. And um, fortunately, we were able to significantly reduce length of stay and while reducing a significant reduction in opioid use, all without really changing any of the patient's um, post-operative pain. So these were really promising results, and we decided that we wanted to publish this for the rest of um, you know, the spine community to, to learn from this and hopefully make it better. Thanks so much uh, you know, for that um, awesome synopsis. I'd like to ask now if Dr. Patel has any questions for the author and then open up the floor for discussion. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hodges. Um, you know, I thought this paper was uh, incredibly uh, well-written and, and organized. Um, as Dr. Moang um, earlier pointed out, you know, it's, it's, it's often nice to see something like that. Um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about the, the sort of ERAS protocol, something at Rutgers we're so discussing, we're not even at the point where we're able to implement it yet. Um, as with any protocol that requires uh, a multi-level buy-in, so to speak, at providers from different levels, how do you ensure adherence? How do you ensure that, you know, at 2 a.m., patients in pain, that there are no deviations from protocol where this, the team basically is dedicated to that goal? I, for one, would know that something like that to accomplish here at our own institution would be a challenge without a major buy-in and a major multidisciplinary protocol. Nitesh, you're exactly right. Setting up an enhanced recovery pathway is extremely challenging. Um, it requires a multidisciplinary team. You have to get everyone in the same room. I mean, even the spine surgeons, uh, you know, everyone has their own particular preference. And unfortunately, 
whenever there's variability, it makes these initiatives difficult to really implement successfully. So one of the first steps uh, that we did was to have everyone sit down and agree to a particular analgesic regimen and a particular protocol to follow. You know, we had to get the hospital administrators, the anesthesiologists, the therapists, everyone we kind of previously talked about into the same room to make this happen. And experience of multiple providers is essential. It wasn't just one single person. Uh, you need different uh, perspectives. And so you ask, how do you prevent these deviations in protocol? Well, once all of this was created, we utilized order sets. I think that's a huge component to making sure uh, things are implemented appropriately, uh, as well as having appropriate sign-offs between providers. You know, everyone has a defined role in the, in the pathway, uh, whether it be the preoperative nurse or the analgesic provider or the anesthesia provider. So we created a structured algorithm to address pain with numerical scales. So we knew exactly a pain score of seven equated to hydrocodone 10 milligrams. Whereas, you know, if hydrocodone 10 milligrams was given twice, um, two consecutive doses, uh, a morphine IV push was then utilized. Uh, so in our manuscript, our, our, our protocol really begins in the preoperative bay all the way until final disposition. And everyone, like I said, is assigned to a particular phase. And I think, you know, we really spread the responsibility among different providers. Uh, and this really prevents, you know, one person from taking on the burden. And it's the beauty and it's the complexity of an ERS pathway uh, that it's not one particular event that makes the difference. It's the synergistic effect of multiple different aspects of the patient care. And uh, trust me, creating one of these pathways is a daunting task. Uh, so we really focus on the inpatient hospitalization portion. And, you know, obviously the preoperative component to it is, is important, but uh, sometimes it's hard to get objective data from that. And so we really focus on the inpatient phases of care. And keep in mind, there's always going to be deviations in an ERS protocol. Uh, it's, it's extremely comprehensive. Uh, but I think what's important is that it creates the groundwork to implement change and better outcomes. That's pretty awesome having that multidisciplinary buy-in. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a goal for a lot of us to, to be able to accomplish. Um, my other question was, you know, regarding uh, incisions, uh, planning, et cetera, um, I'm assuming you know, a lot of these were done in MIS fashion. Uh, in the, the few cases we've done here in sort of an MIS sort of TILA fashion, we're often making, uh, you know, two perk uh, incisions on one side and then on the TILA side, we're sort of making a, a, a slightly longer incision where we connect the two. Um, as far as muscle dissection goes, et cetera, um, you know, we're not as eloquent as, as, as some places are, you know, we tend to just, you know, choose a safe pathway and get down to bone. Um, but I imagine, you know, to reduce pain and stuff that it probably would take, be advantageous to do that. Do you guys, anything particular you guys are doing with muscle dissection or anything like that to help improve outcomes? Um, you know, Nitesh, interesting question. We really didn't change the surgical procedure. Uh, we utilized the same surgical steps in both the control group and the ERAS cohort. Uh, the MIS approach was utilized using a paramedian incision. It was about two to two and a half centimeters in length. And we would dilate right over the facet and we'd perform a facetectomy and if needed a laminectomy to place the inner body device. Now, whether or not we use unilateral or bilateral dilations, uh, performed a contralateral facetectomy, or whether or not we use instrument, we placed uh, instrumentation using the O-arm or fluoroscopy, those were nuances of the particular surgeon. But one of our major goals was to establish a generalizable pathway in which the surgical technique didn't need to be dramatically changed. It was really the entire 
care of the patient while in the hospital, this multidisciplinary approach that really will help improve patient outcomes. Now, keep in mind, surgical technique is obviously very important. And we as surgeons know that, you know, um, performing a, uh, uh, you know, an excellent technically uh, performs operation is a key to good outcomes. But in order to reach that point of having good outcomes to excellent outcomes, that's where an ERS uh, protocol comes into play. There was one thing we did change when it comes to the surgical, you know, dilation and so forth in, in, in regards to pain was we did inject a local anesthetic about 15 to 20 cc's of bupivacaine and marcaine in a, like a, a ridiculous like manner prior to fascial closure into the muscle. And I think this really helped, um, you know, transition uh, the patient in the postoperative bay to the floor. The pain levels wouldn't necessarily be as high. Uh, and that was one of our, our uh, you know, our beliefs uh, with doing this. Yeah, that's, I mean, I 100% agree. I think that's sort of that having that discrepancy as a strength, so to speak, it's kind of, uh, kind of almost internally validates it uh, with the heterogeneity. And then finally, a very simple question is, uh, bracing, do you guys routinely brace these patients uh, with the LSO or anything like that afterwards or a corset? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? You know, Natesh, interesting question. We don't typically use any kind of bracing device after this kind of a procedure. Uh, we don't use the corset. We don't use a TLSO or LSO. We really actually try to mobilize patients right away, uh, post-op day zero, if not post-op day zero, post-op day one. Early mobilization is the key. Get the therapist on board getting them up and moving. Uh, now, when it comes to fusion uh, and evaluating uh, you know, rates of fusion after a single level MIST lift, that's unfortunately a different, a different topic and beyond the scope of this manuscript. But uh, you know, in general, uh, we have very promising results and uh, successful results. But uh, overall, I, I don't say our patients have really um, ever needed or used a, uh, a corset, but that's potentially something we can look at in the future. Thank you. Um, so those are my questions, uh, Dr. Cummick, Dr. Wang, Dr. Hodges, um, feel free to, anything else you guys wanna ask, please. Um, sure, yeah, I've got a, a couple of questions. Um, this is uh, Matt Cummock, one of the neurosurgery residents over at Rutgers. Uh, Mina, great paper. Thank you so much for taking the time to kind of go through this. Um, quick question, and I'm not sure if you touched on it in your paper, um, kind of the use of preoperative education, kind of what these, obviously these patients would have to be consented and you discuss different parts of the protocol with them, but above and beyond that kind of discussing, you know, what the patient's going to experience and, and what kind of uh, preoperative education, was there any part of that implemented with, uh, with, this, with your cohorts? You know, Matt, I cannot stress enough how important the preoperative optimization of patients prior to surgery is crucial for a successful enhanced recovery pathway. I, one of the key players in all of this are our nurse practitioners in the clinic. I mean, they are the ones coordinating and following up with patients if they need to be referred to a smoking cessation clinic or a weight loss clinic. They're the ones that are really optimizing their uh, bone health and following up with their endocrinologists or medicine doctors after certain medications are started. Uh, I think one of the key components of our uh, ERAS pathways to detail a little bit more in the manuscript is our education sessions. We would go through the journey of the hospitalization, uh, what patients will expect when they get admitted, uh, where their pain levels would be and their potential disposition. And if we know a patient's more likely going to proceed with acute rehab or a nursing facility, we'll get that set up. We'll talk to the case managers ahead of time to get all of that set up for uh, discharge. 
and a lot of that happens preoperatively in, um, in the clinic. Got it. And then basically another question kind of on the back end, obviously there was a statistically significant difference in the length of stay uh, between these two cohorts in your paper, not necessarily much of a, a clinically significant, both that they were around three days for their length of stay. Could you talk a little bit about the disposition of these patients? We all know that, you know, getting these patients approved and set up to go to rehab or, or subcube rehab or, or some other place uh, usually is a lot more time consuming than just, you know, getting them home with family support. Matt, our case managers played a crucial role in the ultimate disposition of patients. They were notified of the patient upon arrival. The patient family had already discussed this in the preoperative clinic. And really during the preoperative clinic, it, that really empowers them to, to make, uh, to set goals for the hospitalization. It allows them to visit these facilities before surgery to really have an idea of, of where their ultimate disposition could be. And maybe some patients that thought they were going to a nursing facility realized that they really wanna to go to a rehab center and what a rehab center really, really can provide. Uh, and ultimately a lot of patients would wanna go home. And so the case managers uh, upon arrival and after surgery, they immediately uh, interviewed the patient met with the family and started planning their disposition from post-up day zero. And I think this was crucial to have the entire team involved from the very beginning. Now, in regard to our results, unfortunately, there was no statistically significant change in the ultimate disposition for these patients. However, there was definitely a trend to more patients going home after surgery, and there was definitely less patients going to nursing facilities. Again, not statistically significant, but definitely uh, a trend in the positive. Mm -hmm. I guess uh, my last question, obviously you, you identify, you talk about it a little bit in the limitations of the paper and what you guys are going to do moving forward, introducing or utilizing kind of long acting local anesthetic, like a liposomal buvipacaine. Um, did you feel like that wasn't available, you know, before starting this ERAS protocol? I know it's, it's utilized by a lot of different ERAS protocols um, kind of throughout. Liposomal bupivacaine definitely has advantages. It's, uh, as you mentioned, it's a long-acting anesthetic. Uh, and you're exactly right. In the spine literature, it's used widely when discussing enhanced recovery pathways. Uh, Dr. Wang, who's also um, you know, going to be joining us here in a second, used uh, liposomal bupivacaine in, in the majority of his enhanced recovery pathways. And uh, unfortunately, I don't quite remember why we weren't able to use it when we started this initiative back in 2017. I believe it had to do with availability and formulary issues, um, or it could have been financial constraints. I don't quite remember. I think what, what we can take from this, though, is that although we didn't use, you know, this pretty powerful anesthetic, we were still able to have improved outcomes. I mean, pain scores remained the same, unfortunately, but there was no significant difference, and we were still able to dramatically decrease the amount of opioids a patient required during their hospitalization. So whether or not liposomal bupivacaine could have helped that, uh, potentially, especially in those post-op day zero and one narcotic requirements, uh, definitely could have played a major role. Uh, but the, that's still another area to explore. And uh, I think, you know, it allows other uh, surgeons to, you know, utilize a pathway that might be useful in their, in their practice uh, without necessarily having to use this medication. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. Dr. Corollas, I want to congratulate you on this study and, and thank Dr. Hodges for picking this article because I think, you know, there are a lot of great articles in the Red Journal, but the, the economic and social impact of what you're doing is, is, is outsized because of, of how common these procedures are. And I also want to thank you for reporting data honestly, like when, when we show the length of stay on our MIST list, 
we often get the response, well, you know, all my patients go home the same day and, and you know, it challenges credulity, but you guys are reporting data honestly. So thank you for doing that and, 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 uh, and making the, the folks whose length of stay isn't so perfect feel better about themselves. So, but let me ask you about that buy-in piece because that's critical. You said you had um, uh, nursing, therapy, pharmacy, doctors, anesthesia all bought in. Tell us a little bit about that journey and, and what were the challenges because folks trying to do this, I think that's gonna be one of the barriers, right? Absolutely. So this project, we have to give a special thanks to, to Dr. Uh, John O'Toole, who really pioneered this pathway at Rush. And he's the first one that kind of convened with the administrators. And, uh, and Elena Shelton, who was um, a master's uh, student at Rush, who really wanted to uh, improve the perioperative experience for spine patients. And so they initially tackled the project. And uh, they had one goal in mind to, to, to create this pathway. And uh, you know, I think the important part of all of this is that, you know, we, we get everyone on the same page and that requires a, a handful of meetings and it's never easy for anybody to, uh, to, you know, be able to commit to this. But I also think we were very fortunate. We had a great uh, pain specialist group. Uh, Dr. Bhuvanandran runs the, the anesthesia pain department or is a major player in that. And, you know, creating the preoperative uh, protocol of the Anal, the, the analgesia that we provide, the multimodal analgesia, and then the intraoperative uh, care and um, is, is crucial because uh, getting the anesthesia providers on board is, is a major, um, it can be a major um, difficulty. So I, I would say that um, it takes commitment, it takes uh, several teams in order to, to implement this. But I think what was a huge player in, uh, in our success was that we would give uh, you know, monthly dashboards so that everybody knew what they were, uh, that we were actually accomplished something positive. And also to remind, remind even the surgeons that involved in the study, hey, let's keep enrolling these patients in the fast track protocol. Let's therapists, like keep getting the patients out of bed day, post-op day zero. So um, it really, you know, uh, gave people uh, a sense of responsibility. So, uh, you know, a lot of it's self-motivation, unfortunately, but, um, but the, the, I think the team effort really made a difference. That's great feedback. Um, as you're aware, you know, ERAS programs are, standardly or, or prototypically quality improvement programs. And this is sort of like your first foray, right? And I know you're, you're not at Rush anymore, but maybe you can tell us about what uh, version two of what, e, what ERAS at Rush looks like or what you're gonna do in your practice. Uh, here in Miami, we're on version 3.0 now, and we're learning a lot about these different interventions. We've taken a very different track, as you know, but tell us about what you think the next steps are either at Rush or for you personally in your practice. You know, Dr. Wang, it's been great to observe how you've pushed the envelope for enhanced recovery pathways in spine surgery. And it's really encouraging for the rest of us that are trying to still create and implement and advance our own pathways to see such positive outcomes. And I would say that probably the next frontier that we're going to explore, uh, you know, in either at Rush, uh, and although I won't be directly involved with it because of my recent graduation, is uh, the world of regional anesthesia and spine surgery. I know uh, in the literature, there's been a handful of uh, manuscripts and uh, publications utilizing regional anesthesia and thoracolumbar deformity correction. Uh, in minimally invasive world, it's, uh, I don't believe it's the literature is as robust. And I think, uh, again, naturally minimally invasive surgery kind of synergistically works with these enhanced pathways, regional anesthetic. I think there can be a room for improvement uh, with, with utilizing that type of anesthetic technique. Uh, obviously it needs to be done safely and we have to use neuromonitoring and so forth uh, when performing these procedures. So uh, there's definitely some challenges, but I think that the preliminary data is, is likely promising and I hope uh, to be involved with it in future studies if possible. 
and when I go to my final practice, uh, I'll be joining a um, uh, group in Atlanta uh, in the coming months. I, I really hope to implement it, all these enhanced recovery pathways uh, you know, uh, that we've already established at Rush and hopefully anything new that's able to be developed. Uh, and I hope everybody continues to share this knowledge with each other. Thank you, Dr. Wang, for that question. Uh, Mina's uh, follow-up, have you considered utilizing or have utilized the uh, ERES protocol in open, more extensive spine surgeries? Right, so the enhanced recovery pathway that was implemented at Rush was really used across the board for all spine surgeries initially. Uh, but one of the flaws that we noticed in the literature, uh, first of all, in spine surgery, there's not, a, there's not that many papers on enhanced recovery pathways compared to the other orthopedic subspecialties and general surgery subspecialties. Uh, spine is really lacking. And in, when there is data, um, it tends to include a very heterogeneous population, uh, single and level multi-operations, uh, single multi-level um, anterior cervical and thoracal lumbar, minimally invasive and open. And then there's also different general anesthesia techniques, um, whether it be like awake surgery versus asleep. And so we implemented the pathway. And what we realized is that, you know, you don't treat uh, like a, you know, a, a total hip from a hip replacement the same way. You don't treat a cervical you know, arthroplasty the same way as you treat a front back operation for myelopathy. And so what we decided to do was, was once we had this kind of implemented across the board, we decided to tailor it in looking at as specific a cohort as possible. And so we really only took single level minimally invasive patients uh, that were undergoing a T-lift with general anesthesia um, and really evaluated their outcomes. But once again, I think enhanced recovery pathways are going to be the, the way to go for all spine surgeries. But we wanted to take a look at one particular type of operation and really, um, you know, really uh, revise it and, you know, uh, bring it to its best uh, potential ability to, to help patients. Great. And to follow up, um, kind of uh, from a more broad perspective, how do you think this study addresses or helps mitigate the national opioid crisis. And if you were kind of to reflect on writing this paper and um, you know collecting data, what do you think are some future directions for spine neurosurgeons and pain management going forward? Um, you know, enhanced recovery pathways are definitely gonna be a major player um, in the opioid epidemic. I mean, we started this study in 2016 uh, looking at, um, you know, link to stay in opioid consumption. And I believe the opioid epidemic really hit mainstream media in, in early 2017. And, you know, our primary outcome was length of stay, but our secondary outcome was was opioid use. And it could have easily been our primary outcome, but um, you, we had a really, really already initiated the, the study and the, and, and the protocol. And so we wanted to keep everything uh, clean. Uh, but nonetheless, we were able to significantly reduce the amount of opioid used. I mean, if you look at our pre-protocol group, we, there was a use of 450 morphine equivalent units uh, prior to the implementation of enhanced pathway. And we cut it down by nearly half, uh, a little bit over half, 250 morphine equivalent units. That's a dramatic decrease in the amount of, of uh, opioid use that, that patients um, require in the hospital. And there were really no change in, in post-operative pain scores, as we already discussed. I mean, there's been plenty of studies that have demonstrated that patients that are introduced to narcotics for the first time while in the hospital have a much higher chance of, of opioid addiction uh, post after, after discharge. And it's, so it's really important to try to minimize that amount of narcotics that's given. And, and what I would tell to other practicing spine surgeons and pain specialists is really use multimodal analgesia. 
take all the additive synergistic effects of, of all these other medications such as you know gabapentin, uh, you know muscle relaxants, uh, IV acetaminophen, and really take all their their additive effects and really try to wean off those narcotics. And uh, I mean we're already seeing uh, you know improved patient outcomes, and it's already been demonstrated for a handful of of spine protocols. And I think this is the really the first opportunity to really show a significant difference in a in a very particular cohort of patients. And we hope to expand this to cover other minimally invasive operations in the same number, um, you know, in the same kind of uh, uh, powered study. So uh, I think I think the results are promising. Great. Well, if there aren't any further questions, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who participated today in a, in a very riveting discussion. We appreciate our listeners, so please be sure to look out for next month's CNS Journal Club podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Tiffany. Thanks, Tiffany. Thanks, everyone.